Now, the last time Sarah Walker was on the show, we spoke about information. And I think many of us think of information as something you can know, something you can read in a book and have in your head. But what Sarah challenged us to do is to think about information in a very different way, to think about it as a property of the system. And she was interested in this concept in her work on origin of life. You know, at what point does a group of molecules go from being a group of molecules who don't do much to a group of molecules who are alive, who act with agency? And what role does information play in that? Now, if you haven't listened to the episode on information, I suggest you probably go back and do that today because we're going to talk about a different topic, but it's related. So Sarah is the Deputy Director of the Beyond Centre for Fundamental Concepts in Science. She's an Associate Professor in Earth and Space Exploration and Complex Adaptive Systems at Arizona State University. She's also external faculty at the Santa Fe Institute. And in this episode, Sarah's going to talk about time. And she's going to do the same thing with time as she did about information. She's going to challenge our interpretation of what we mean by time. And what I love about this episode is we tend to think about time as something that passes. You know, we look at our watch and it's got later. But Sarah's going to talk about how we have on many occasions in the history of science, particularly physics, changed how we think about time. And she's going to ask if it's now time to change that again, particularly when we look at complex adaptive systems and when we look at the origin of life problem. So with that introduction, it's now time to talk about time. This is Simplifying Complexity, a podcast where we explore the underlying principles of complex systems. Systems that seem to defy our rational view of the world, like economies, ecologies, or even you or me. I'm forensic engineer Sean Brady, and I'll be your host. Sarah Walker, welcome back on the show. Thanks so much for having me back. I'm excited about talking about time. Last time we talked a lot about information and the role of information in, in life. And as you say, we're going to talk about time. And you want to start with a, a sort of a history of time and time keeping and how we think about time. Yeah, it really struck me recently. And I'm sorry I'm blanking on the name of the author of this article, but I was reading this fabulous article on Noema about the tyranny of time. And it started with people blowing up clocks in the end of the 1800s because they were revolting against the idea of centralized time. And it's so interesting because we run our lives by clocks and we think that the sort of concepts we have of time now are pretty absolute and not realizing that that's a cultural artifact of our time and that time itself and the ways that we measure time are very much a human invention. So if you go back in human history, the first clocks were made out of the elements. So we used clocks made out of sand and clocks made out of water and clocks made out of shadows. And then eventually we were able to build mechanical devices that we call clocks. And those clocks were actually more accurate timekeeping devices than these ones that were kind of harnessing just natural resources. And the mechanical clocks were actually what allowed us to invent seconds. So before that, we had never been able to keep time that accurately before. And it was by the process of being able to measure seconds that Tycho Brahe was able to so accurately track planetary motion when he was recording, you know, with his giant telescope on his island, all these motions, you know, he actually had accurate clocks to say how long it took for things to move a certain distance across the night sky. And then that enabled Kepler and then Newton to actually formulate laws of planetary motion. And so I think this idea that time 
is this sort of absolute property is really sort of an artifact of that cultural heritage. And in fact, Newton had this concept of time that clocks ticked along and objects kind of moved through time, but it was never a feature of the objects themselves. And that's in part because they were using timekeeping devices to track the motions of objects through time. When railroads were invented, we had to have time be consistent across, you know, large geographical stretches. So we had to centralize time somewhere and that became London Standard Time. And so, you know, there were a lot of holdouts and people being like really opposed to the idea that they had to run their clocks by what London said instead of their local clocks, which had always, you know, held time for them for centuries. So this idea of kind of absolute time is really a cultural artifact of a certain period in human history. And it's worth challenging some of those ideas, I think, now as we get into the world of the complex and and have more dimensionality to how we think about time and realize that some of these concepts might not hold. Where did the Einstein come into this? So this is actually a great example. So actually, if you look at the history of physics over the last 300 years since it was invented, each century has kind of introduced its own concept of time. So I already talked about how you know, in Newton's time, it was a clockwork universe. And so time was really what is measured on clock. And objects just move through time. They can move forward or backward in some sense. And it really doesn't matter. It's just sort of this immutable, absolute reference frame through which everything, all motion is defined. And then you get to the 1800s. And as we're also revolting against this sort of idea of having absolute time and standardized time, we're also realizing time has a directionality which of course is obvious in our everyday experience, but not so obvious to deep fundamental descriptions of the world. But in order to explain the behavior of steam engines and also the other technology we were creating, we had to invent a kind of physics that had time as an irreversible feature, which is thermodynamics, introducing the second law of entropy. So time had to have a directionality because you can't run an engine forever. You'll run out of fuel and that sets a direction for how you can use useful work and how you produce entropy. So clockwork universe, thermodynamic universe, two different concepts of time. And then you get to the last century and the kinds of time that were invented in that century are are notions of relativistic time. So this is obviously very apparent in Einstein's theories. So he did a couple interesting things. One is to recognize that time is not absolute. It depends on your reference frame as far as your perception of the passage of time. And that part of that is also that time is a coordinate just like space. So just like we measure the tick on a ruler, you can measure the ticks on a clock and they're just measuring two features of space-time as he unified it. This property of having space-time actually means that time behaves like space. And since all points in space exist sort of at all times, there's an interpretation of Einstein's theory, which is sometimes called the block universe, that the past, present, and future all exist all at once in a static structure, just like we assume everywhere in the universe exists all at once in a spatial coordinate. So this kind of actually removed time. It became a timeless universe. So the passage of time for individuals in that universe is relative as far as how much time we experience or might observe, but it's all existing in this sort of giant static structure that we just have the illusion of moving through. Or this is sort of the standard interpretation of Einstein's time. It's also super interesting if you look outside of physics, theories that were invented around the same time, there's a theory of computation, which started with Alan Turing's work basically building the foundations of modern computing. And there's also a sense of a relative kind of time in computability theory in the sense that people will talk about the runtime of programs. And a program has a different runtime on different machines. And so most people care about sort of the maximal or the minimal runtime of the program as sort of its complexity. 
But the point is that if you want to define the time complexity of a computer program, it really depends on what machine you're running it on as far as how efficient it is for a given program. So there's some concept of relative time also in computability theory, and it looks very different. But I think that those two ideas of relative time are actually probably deeply related. And so the main innovation of the last century was really to give us this idea that time is relative to a particular observer and that it has a local context to it in some regard. And Einstein embedded this in this overall static structure. But I think the main innovation is that relativity. So can you just talk about that idea of time and computation again? You're saying it's not just, you know, when we think of programs running faster on certain computers, you're saying it's actually a bit different than that. It's actually the computer program is essentially changing time. And that's a very simplistic way of saying it. But can you talk about that? That is sort of the implication I guess I'm getting at. And I really don't know this field that well as far as how people think about time in computer science. But if I was going to give a physical interpretation of what time looks like to me in terms of the way we talk about things in computability theory, to say that the same object, the same computer program takes a different duration of time to compute its output on different machines introduces a relativity to time that sounds a little bit like the kind of relativity of time that we see in special relativity and general relativity in the sense that the same object moving at different relativistic velocities experiencing a different physical reference frame will experience different amounts of time or will look like it has, it will look like it's experiencing a different amount of time to an external observer, right? And when it observes other things, it will look like, to it, it will look like those things are having different amounts of time. So the reason I think this is kind of interesting is, you know, if we think about the physics that we need to describe life, it's neither computation theory as it emerged in computer science nor standard physics, but it's deeper connection between them. And sometimes I talk about that as information and matter becoming the same thing. And we can talk about, I think we talked about that a little bit in the information discussion. If you look at it from that perspective, then these kind of senses of relativity are really just telling us that when you have a different physical reference frame, whether the reference frame is defined as the computation that produces the output or in a particular situation, is relative motion in the physics Einstein saw, then you get this kind of relative concept of time. And a computer, if you assume that that's actually the physical system, then there's sort of a generalized concept there. And so when we get to physics of life, we're talking about now the objects not being computer programs, but actually transforming material objects from some set of inputs to some set of outputs. And in life, you know, that sort of algorithmic process generates the complexity we observe in the biosphere. But the machine, quote unquote, is actually the implementation of physical objects. It's not a computer anymore. But I think there's some analogies that hold there as far as what this concept of time might say in that kind of space. But there's also new concepts of time that have to be introduced when you actually think about it in this sort of deeper physical way in the context of evolution and what life is doing. So you're starting off with time is an absolute thing in Newton's time. It's, and it's the frame of reference by which you look at everything else moving and then get to thermodynamics, which puts a directionality to that. And then you're saying what Einstein really did was he took time and he made it not the reference point, but an inherent part of the system in the same way space was. And then things started to be relative to one another. Yeah. We didn't mention quantum mechanics either, but quantum mechanics has also 
if we want to say like all the theories of physics and what they say about time, quantum mechanics also has a sort of different notion of time, which is time is an emergent property. And it's basically the description of how quantum states change. So time becomes the mechanism by which you can transform one quantum state into another. What do you mean by that? Going from one quantum state to another? It's not explicitly a variable, but it's like a parameter in quantum mechanics. And so in quantum mechanics, you have some sense that things change. Quantum states can change into other quantum states. And that feature of being able to change is what we call time in quantum physics. So it's not a fundamental property in quantum physics. In quantum physics, the fundamental property is the quantum state, but it is sort of an emergent property of the relationships between quantum states, or at least that's one way to interpret it. And also in thermodynamics, it's considered an emergent property because you assume the microscopic physics, you know, like the way particles move is reversible, but somehow if you look at them in aggregate and you assign statistics over their behavior, we see this sort of irreversibility emerge. And so where time seems to set a directionality or become something that we consider real, quote unquote, it ends up being considered this emergent phenomena with a directionality or what determines the flow of change in standard physics. And so part of what I think needs to be done to explain what's happening with life that's quite a bit different is to invert that and actually make that the fundamental feature and derive what other things would be consequences of time being a real thing and change being a real feature, which wasn't a feature of Einstein's physics because everything just existed. So some people think of time as an emergent property of a system, but you don't agree with that. No, I don't. And I think the reason people think that is because current theories of physics might suggest it. And there are certain ways that you can think about time in physics as either being non-existent or at the bare minimum, not fundamental. It doesn't seem to play a very important role besides a frame for things in most theories of physics. This is one of the reasons that we're constantly revisiting concepts of time is that I think we still really don't understand what it is. And so as I was outlining before, like every theory of physics has kind of reinvented what time is in kind of a new way. And I think all of them are probably partly right, but they're what time has been projected into that kind of physics, not really just thinking about the physics of time explicitly and what does that physics look like. And so when people think about it as an emergent property, they're usually talking about the thermodynamic arrow of time, the directionality of time that appears when you're doing useful work and you're creating entropy. And the reason that it's considered an emergent property in that context is because if you actually look at the microscopic laws of physics, say the things that can control the behavior of molecules, those are fully reversible. So you can run those forward and backwards if you're just talking about the motions of molecules in a gas, and they'll be uh, time symmetric as long as you're conserving energy. Now, if you then look at a macroscopic aggregate of molecules, its behavior can be very non-time symmetric. So you can think, for example, my daughter was eating ice cream this evening. She likes to leave her popsicles and ice cream out on the counter. And its melting is obviously an irreversible process, even though the individual motion of the molecules in that ice cream or popsicle might actually be reversible. The whole macroscopic entity becomes irreversibly lost due to heat. So this is one of the reasons that the arrow of time is considered an emergent property because it's not a property that applies to individual units. It's something that applies to macroscale phenomena that we can talk about entropy at all or that we can talk about heat and work, which are the sort of standard concepts in thermodynamics. So they're talking about time as a, an emergent property in the sense that 
the popsicle changes over time from solid to something that's fundamentally not solid. Is that the sort of the argument there? Yeah, in some sense. I mean, this is a really crude argument and I'm having a hard time making an argument on the opposite side of the fence because I don't, I think that time is fundamental and does have a directionality to it. But in thermodynamics, it has to be considered an emergent property because you're dealing with individual elements that have time reversible laws. But the overall system of the behavior, the behavior of the system in a statistical sense appears irreversible. Is it considered an emergent property because that's the only way you can deal with it when you decide that time is absolute in the Newtonian sense? Is that the problem? Is it sort of a halfway house between Einstein and Newton? It might be a halfway house between Newton and Boltzmann in some sense because when thermodynamics was invented, we hadn't invented Einsteinian physics yet, but we had Newtonian physics. And so Newtonian physics treats time as this thing that kind of exists outside the universe. And it's just, you know, like how you clock what changes and you can run, you know, planetary motion forward and backwards. You can run particles in a gas any way that you want. And it doesn't, you know, there's no specific directionality to it. But then as we were looking at engines and this kind of idea of thinking about work and energy, it turned out that we had to have some kind of irreversibility. And that became something that was a feature of these many body systems. When you look at many replicates of a system and you talk about an ensemble of systems that have similar properties, on average, they show a statistical trend. And that statistical trend is one of what we call increasing entropy. So it's actually a statistical trend over many identically prepared systems that you start to see that there's a directionality. And so that's also something that's a little bit odd about thermodynamics is the features that lead to an arrow of time are not properties of individual systems. They're properties of ensembles of systems. So that's why it becomes an emergent property in people's minds. Yes, because it's an averaged feature. There's nothing in thermodynamics that says that the second law of thermodynamics can be violated. People think it's absolute law and it can't be violated. But of course, you can have a statistical fluctuation that violates the second law. But the whole point is the overall trend over many systems will have this behavior. And so some people have made the argument that maybe like the whole entire biosphere is sort of just a statistical fluctuation against the second law. And we're, you know, eventually going to go to the typical heat death predicted by thermodynamics. So where does Darwin come in then? No, we haven't put Darwin in yet because Darwin's not really considered within the standard canon of theoretical physics, although I think he should be. And I actually don't know why Darwin's not taught as an assistant in some ways. Except maybe he didn't propose some like elegant mathematical theory at the time and probably because we didn't know enough about biological objects to try to really write a mathematical theory. But certainly he was a very deep philosophical thinker and anyone that looked at biology and was trying to study what life is and what life is doing in that time period, came up with some concept of evolution. And you can even go back, actually, um, Newton's contemporary Leibniz, who invented calculus at the same time as Newton, you know, probably was an equal level of genius, chose the problem of biology to study instead of the problem of gravity. (laughs) And he was radically unsuccessful, but he wrote this thing called the monadology, which is about, in some sense, about the causal structures that propagate through all objects. It's a little bit like the replicator or these other concepts that have come up later on. He talked about his concept of a soul, like what is it that flows through living things that continues to animate them as they produce more living things. And so Darwin's main contribution was obviously the theory of evolution by natural selection. 
But I think where he comes in the story that's super interesting is, is in this quote that he made at the end of The Origin of Species, where he makes a direct contrast between Newtonian physics and what we see in the biosphere. And the quote, I probably won't hit it exactly, but it's something like, whilst this planet has been going around the sun according to the fixed law of gravity, endless forms most beautiful have been or continuing to be evolved or something like that. So the whole point of it is Newton's laws are fixed forever and describe planetary motion for all time. And that doesn't seem to work for the biosphere because it's generating endless novelty, like continually new forms are being created. So how can you describe with any kind of fixed dynamical law something that is continually generating new structures? And so you can't know the rules of a system before it's invented. And evolution is the physics that invents new systems. So this becomes a really sort of paradoxical situation when you contrast Newtonian physics and Darwinian physics in some sense, that it really demands some kind of understanding of new principles because these two things don't seem to fit together very well. And so the question is, you can try to take physics as we know it and adapt it to what Darwin saw, but it doesn't seem to work and people have really tried that. And if you look at these sort of concepts of time that we've already discussed, you know, there's Newtonian time, which is this absolute sort of relativistic time, quantum time is emergent, the running out time is directionality and emergent. Darwin is saying time has a directionality to it, but time is also evidenced by this generation of novelty. And so it's this feature, time, and why time may be really important for understanding the physics of life. Like what is the concept of time that life provides that's very neat as a, theory, a new theory of physics that might be unfolding from the time of Darwin and that we're still working on now because we have yet to solve the origin of life. If you had to sum up, what is the fundamental issue with kind of all those definitions of time that makes us need a new one if we're going to understand life? The main issue is that it seems to be clear that if you want to evolve something, evolutionary objects, things that require billions of years on a planet to form, because you have to first form you know, it's like you want to get to something like a human, you have to first form single cells, then multicellular organisms, then multicellular organisms actually can evolve into humans and humans can form societies and things. So there's certain ordering of things that can exist in an evolutionary sequence. And so in order to get to certain objects, whether it's a complex molecule or a human society, those kind of structures require time to actually ever form. And so you could sort of write that off and just say, well, that's just, you know, everything in the universe takes time to happen. But I think it's a different sense of time because in Newtonian physics, if I wanted the planets to move around the sun a certain way and I wanted the earth to be at a particular position at a certain time, I just initialize it in a particular place and then it gets there, right? But in the biosphere, you know, if I want to evolve a particular structure, I actually have to have the entire history of events to make that particular structure. I can't just move the system around wherever I want. Like there's this whole unfolding of selecting on past states to generate the next states and generate all this novelty. And so it seems to be the case that if you're talking about evolution, time is a critical feature of evolution. It's literally like evolution is change over time, generation of novelty and selection of novelty over time. And so if you assume that time is actually the feature, then it gives you this sort of new window for thinking about what evolution is and what it does. And it clearly has a directionality. And it's also clearly what's generative of the complex objects that we see in the biosphere. And in your writing, I read, again, I won't get this quote right, but you make the point that if you 
physically don't provide enough time, in other words, if time isn't a feature of what you're trying to involve, it will never get there. So therefore, time has to be an inherent feature. Yeah. So this is a good point. And maybe it wasn't clear by my example I just gave. So this one example of like, if I wanted the earth to move halfway around the sun, I could just specify the position of it and then it would just move in that amount of time. But it's not like you can make any sort of arbitrary motion in the biosphere, like as far as generation of these new forms happen in a short interval of time. It's not a instantaneous thing. It's something that requires, exactly as you're saying, a certain amount of time to pass in order for that structure to even exist. So if I had a shorter amount of time, I would never produce something like humans. So what's the implication of all this then, Sarah? So if you're saying time is a feature of, of a system, which I'm gathering Newton didn't think of or didn't describe it as a feature of a system and all the other things we talked about didn't describe it as a feature of the system either. What does that change? What's the implications of that? So interesting to me because I think the way that we think about time in different theories of physics is really something that we philosophize after we build those theories of physics. So the way I came around to thinking about time as a really like a real physical thing in the sense that it becomes a material property, evolved objects take time to meet because they actually have a size and time. They can't just form in a short amount of time. They happen sometimes as we're trying to do thought experiments. But the way that comes about really is to try to think about this idea that complex objects are products of evolution and they only form by evolution. And this is something that's not present in standard physics, right? We assume that anything can be created anywhere. And that it's not unique, say, to a planet like Earth, that particular structures should form over time because of the particular evolutionary trajectory we have on Earth. But it does seem when you're looking at life, like I was saying, that certain things can only come into existence along particular evolutionary lineages. And so you need that whole history of information to make that specific object. And so if you don't have that history in that particular location... In the universe, you will never make that object. You need the memory of all of the past states in order to form that particular object. Now, if you take that as a real feature of physics, there are ways of formalizing that. And we do that in the theory that I'm working on, which I've talked about a little bit already, called assembly theory, where we treat the ways that you can build an object by physical operations. So they have to be things that are physically implementable in the real universe as a feature of the object. So for molecules, you can make bonds. So you can build a molecule up by forming bonds between two parts of molecules. And you can reuse parts you've made in the past. So that's where memory becomes important. And you can get up to that original molecule that you were trying to make. And you can look at all such structures and there will be a shortest path in that space. And that's what we consider to the measure of whether the molecule had to be produced by life. Because if the path is sufficiently long, then you need too much memory in order to produce that specific object that it can't happen by random chance or spontaneous fluctuation. It has to happen by evolution. So the conjecture there is then complex objects or evidence of evolution. And if you then look at how we measure that feature, we go in the lab, we fragment a molecule. You can actually look at that shortest path in mass spectrometry, but you can also do an infrared and NMR. So there are ways of measuring this as an actual feature of a molecule. You're basically deconstructing the molecule in time, looking at the way the universe can build the molecule and taking it apart to find that sort of minimal structure. Now you're actually treating the molecule not as a configuration of atoms, not as a massive object, 
you know, it's got a size to it, like a physical size in terms of like you can measure with a, a ruler. It's got a mass. Now we're not talking about those being the important properties of molecules. But in a theory of evolution, the important property of the molecule is what's the amount of time required to make this object? How much time is in this object? And this becomes the most significant feature. So there's a, a direct interpretation of what we're trying to do when we started building assembly theory as a biosignature to try to detect complex molecules uniquely produced by life to building a theory of physics that takes assembly as a serious property to a new concept of time, that time now has to be considered as a physical attribute of objects. And evolved objects actually have a size and time and they can't come into existence until at least that minimal size has been accomplished. And most objects, like most complex objects, have a very, you know, long period of steps, a very large size and time. And so the more the biosphere evolves, the larger the objects are, the more complex that it can bring into existence because it has more memory to do so and it has more parts it's built in the past that it can build up new objects. And time becomes critical in that. And time becomes critical. It becomes fundamental. It becomes material in the sense that you're now not treating objects, as I said, as things that have a spatial size or things that have a mass. You're treating objects as things that have a size and time. And that temporal component becomes the feature of the object that you build the rest of the theory from. So this fundamentally becomes a theory of time as a material property. Time is matter. And complex matter is just complex because it's big in time. And that's what brings together what we talked about in the last episode, the fact that you need the information, you need the memory. And that's a feature, obviously, of the system. And then you also need the time to allow that to be built and to be evolved. So you're fundamentally changing how we look at objects from, the way, as, as, I, as you say, from a collection of molecules as to, you know, if we really want to understand this and how it was built, you have to look at time and you have to look at information. And fundamentally, those two things are probably the same thing. And so information we talked about has a sort of interesting property that it seems very abstract. And it seems to be that information can move between objects, you know, like we're speaking the same language. But when you can share information between objects, like you and I speaking, what that is, is evidence of a common history. These things that we call information and abstractions, I think, are just evidence that these objects are actually deep in time. So things look more abstract the deeper in time they are. And it's one of the reasons I think that as the biosphere has evolved over time, it's increased the layers of information processing and abstraction that it's built. But really what it is, is you're generating these objects that are deeper and deeper in time. And so some of their features look less and less physical because they're not physical now. They're physical in the structure that's extended in time. You have a lovely line in one of your papers where you say that each of us are our own age, but in many ways, we're thousands and thousands of years old because we have accumulated all that information inside our genes to be who we are today. That's right. So parts of you are brand new and parts of us are all brand new from this conversation because we've exchanged information and generated new structures. But parts of us are billions of years old. and so. One of the oldest things on this planet is the ribosome, which is inside every single cell. And it's part of the translation machinery. So it's the sort of key functional component that allows you to read out information that was in the DNA sequences, which is translated to RNA. The RNA is brought to the ribosome along with some other proteins, and then it's used to produce a protein. So this is one of the earliest technological innovations that life made. It's like this huge innovation. and 
it's been on the planet for, we think, 3.8 billion years. And it's not that ribosomes have been on the planet for 3.8 billion years. I think maybe I've talked about this example before, but it's that the pattern that is the ribosome has been on the planet for 3.8 billion years. So that memory of how to make a ribosome has persisted that long. And it's the memory in the whole cellular architecture that keeps reconstructing the ribosome. But the ribosome is also something that's holding the memories of other objects and allowing the construction of other objects. So you get these sort of self-reinforcing structures that keep building themselves over time. And the older they are, the sort of more pervasive they are across different objects that you see in the biosphere. Just to finish, all your work is, uh, your real focus is on origin of life and how that came about. And you're essentially doing this because you're saying, until you think about information in a different way, until you think about time in a different way, you can't actually understand where life comes from. Yeah. So I started out my career working on the origin of life. Actually, before that, I started out as a theoretical physicist and I was like, I just want to work on something fundamental. And then I entered my PhD in a cosmology group and my PhD advisor was like, try the origin of life problem for a little while. And I was very hesitant about it at first, but then I realized the most interesting thing about the origin of life is we have no theory in physics that can really account for this transition. It seems to be a pretty fundamental one. And so I thought that was deeply intriguing that most people were trying to work on definitions for life and no definitions worked. And there weren't people that were really trying to tackle the problem from this perspective of fundamental physics. And I thought, well, if gravity and quantum mechanics are fundamental descriptions of nature and life invented those descriptions of nature, surely life itself must be equally fundamental. And we should be able to uncover some theories of physics that are really interesting working on this problem. And so thinking about what is life for a number of years first led to the concept of information being critical, which I think most physicists or people approaching the problem of life think that the key difference between non-life and life must have something to do with information. And that turned into thinking a lot about information having causation and actually being necessary for certain things to happen, which gets into this idea of how the universe builds complexity, which goes back to evolution. And when you think about trying to build a theory of physics, and in particular, when you can go into the lab and measure when the origin of life has happened, then you start having to think about molecules having these features because molecules are, are where we think life first emerged in molecules. And when you do that, you have to reinvent concepts of time because now the sort of structure you built says really fundamentally new things about time. And so the reason I'm going through all of this is it goes back to the beginning of our discussion about people always think about sort of what we know now is like what we know and like sort of absolute without all that historical context. And I think if you look at the history of how science has progressed, in particular theoretical physics, it's very clear about certain sorts of patterns of how ideas come together over the centuries. And I think what's happening with the origin of life that's super interesting now is this opportunity to reinvent some of our basic notions and fundamental understanding by really trying to tackle the problem, what is life head on, without carrying baggage from prior theories of physics. Because every time we've invented a new theory of physics, we've done it by looking at the phenomena that we can't understand and forgetting what we learned before and just trying to decompose that phenomena and really try to understand it. Quantum mechanics is a good example. Everybody was like, there's no such thing as a quantum. And they tried all kinds of continuum approximations for this like obviously discrete behavior. And then finally they were like, there's no way to describe this unless you assume there's a quantum phenomena as a real thing. And then once they did that leap, then all these other kind of very radical reconceptualizations of physical reality emerged. And I think people haven't considered information and time to be physical attributes of things. And that might be the leap that we need to actually explain what life is. 
And we're going to get you back on the show in the future, Sarah, to talk about Origin of Life. But in the meantime, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Simplifying Complexity, where we look at the key concepts of complexity science with expert minds from across the world. Concepts like emergence, self-organization, adaptation, networks, scaling, tipping points, and much more. This podcast was produced by Brady Haywood and Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. I'm Sean Brady, and I'll see you in our next episode. 